Today we'll learn a phenomenal insight into the power of Teshuvah based on a Siyum, conclusion of Masech de Yuma, which is related to our parasha, seeing as our parasha speaks about Yom Kippur. So right towards the end of Masech de Yuma, the Gemara tells us something which seems to be very difficult to comprehend logically. Here's the Gemara. Yuma, at the end of Yuma, it says, they taught in Rabbi Shmuel's yeshiva, a man who has a seminal discharge at night on Yom Kippur night, should be anxious all year long. But if he makes it through and survives the year, then he is guaranteed that he has a portion in the world to come. Supports us by saying, you should know. Look at what's happening over here. The rest of the world is hungry because it is forbidden to have intimate relations on Yom Kippur evening. And this person is satisfied to be able to have that experience. And then Rav Dimi adds another layer to that. And he says, That this is somebody who will live long and they will see generations of children and please God, grandchildren. So what's the Gemara telling us of here? Let's first see why on earth did the Gemara talk about this in the first place? It must be contextual. What was the Gemara talking about? It must be that this is a continuation of what the Gemara previously spoke about over there, which is whether or not a person immerses in a mikveh if they had a seminal discharge on Yom Kippur when you're not supposed to immerse in a mikveh. So the Gemara spoke about that, and this obviously follows on. But it still really leaves us with a very major question. How does it make sense? How could it be that the Gemara concludes that chapter of Masech Yuma, which is called the chapter of Yom Kippur, which is a peric completely dedicated to, as the name illustrates, Teshuvah, an atonement. And especially when you look at now, we're talking about the final Mishnah of this parak, and you see the context of that Mishnah and the entire Gemara conversation around it. It's all about Teshuvah and atonement. So you being in Havchim how does it make any sense that we should now be discussing something which is the exact opposite of Teshuvah and atonement? We're talking about an Avera, and not just any Avera. Let's analyze what kind of an Avera. If a person would cause this experience to themselves intentionally, it would be one of those averas who be one of the most difficult averas for which a person would have to work really hard to do tshuva. And of course, here we're talking about something that happened that was beyond the person's control. But once you understand how severe something is, then even if it occurs by accident, it's still severe. Because an accidental action is always in some way similar to the same action if it had been done intentionally. Can we actually see this? Because you see that anything that deserves a harsher punishment when it's done on purpose will also have a heavier um, uh, atonement when it's done by accident. So we're talking about a really serious Avera, and that's how you round off the chapter of the Maseches that is all about Teshuvah and Kapara. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, you'll say, but it ends off on a positive note, right? Look how the Gemara concluded it, that if the person makes it through the year, then he'll have brochas, he's guaranteed a portion of the world to come, he'll have a long life, he'll see generations. If you read what the Gemara is saying, it's saying that 
over the period of time. Long after Yom Kippur is over. Then, something positive might come out of the scenario. But when the actual emission occurs on Yom Kippur, it's undoubtedly something inappropriate and against what Hashem would want. So how does it fit with the theme of this parak, which is all about Teshuvah and Kapora? In fact, through this, besides that contextual question, there's a fundamental question about this whole story. How could it be that something which is negative and then doubly negative because of what it is and when it occurred? Haroya Aleph Keri, firstly, the fact that a person had a seminal emission, and then Beis Biyam HaKippurim, the fact that it was in Yom Kippur. How could something so negative, be the cause of an outcome that is so positive? The guarantee that a person has a portion in the next world. And a person will live long and see generations. How does that work? How is it logical to say that something really inappropriate occurs and the result is something so powerful and positive and blessed? So Rashi Rashi offers an explanation, which is, as the Gemara said, if the person does survive the year, which means that he didn't die within the course of that year, that's that is in fact an indication and a security that he obviously must have had real credits in his spiritual bank account, and that tided him over and protected him, and that in itself is the indicator that this person will go to Olam Haba. That's Rashi's explanation. But the way Rashi is putting it, it sounds like dover acher, my symptom, that there's something outside of the immediate context, the fact that the person has good deeds. And that's what protects the person not to be harmed. But that's not what the Gemara sounds like. But the way the Gemara says it is, if the person who saw the seminal emission lives out the year, that guarantees him a portion of the world to come. That would actually imply that there's a direct correlation and connection between this emission and the access to Elam Haba. Not like Rashi says that there's a side issue of extra Maisim Tovin that protected the person. So how does that make any sense? That somehow this terrible occurrence should be the direct cause of a person getting a portion in the world to come. And it still doesn't make sense. How is it possible that seeing an nocturnal emission, which is a negative thing, should be the direct cause and guarantee of a person getting into the next world? And how could it possibly bring the person blessing in this world of long life and generations to come? Okay, another question that is very similar and perhaps even a, a greater question than that. Similar to the question we've just raised, perhaps even a stronger question is, it's really difficult to understand the entire principle of Teshuvah out of love of Hashem as opposed to Teshuvah Meira. The Gemara says when a person does Teshuvah that is driven by love of Hashem, then even intentional Averis that they did now become their merits and credits. So the Maharsham, says that really doesn't seem to make any sense, because it sounds like the person who did something which is against the Torah benefits from having done so. And we have a principle which is we never allow a sinner to benefit from their sin. And he offers the following answer. When a person does tshuva, which is motivated by love of Hashem, there's no question then that obviously he has done complete tshuva. And when you do complete tshuva, then to compensate for that, the person will do many, many, many more mitzvahs than they ordinarily would have done. 
So the Maharsha says, those additional mitzvahs that the person will do to play catch-up, those will become the credits and merits that the person has because of the trivia that they have done. And he says it actually seems that way from the Pasuk that the Gemara quotes, Shenema, where the Pasuk says, When the Rasha turns back from his wicked behavior. So it says that Mishpat, justice, and Tzedakah will, so to speak, live with a person. The Mashma and the Marasha understands from that that what the Pasuk is saying is, that because of the additional Mishpah, which is Torah learning and Tzedakah mitzvahs that the person has done, that's what's going to add life to the person. So it sounds similar to Rashi. The extra mitzvahs, they are what give the person this extra capacity for, for merit and for credit. The truth is that the Marashal's answer does not seem completely clear. What does the Gemara say? It says the intentional Averos, they become for this person his credits and merits. So that doesn't sound like it's talking about something else, which is not the actual Averos themselves. Like, for example, adding many, many more mitzvahs to compensate for the Averos that the person has done. The way the Gemara says it, it sounds like the actual Averos, they become the credits. Which takes us right back to the original question, how could it be that a person for having done an Avera should stand to benefit? So clearly we're not understanding something about what appears to be so negative and how they could have a really positive impact. Ah, you could say, but that's exactly what the Gemara meant, that the Averos become the person's merits. Because you'll say, what caused this person to add so many new mitzvahs and good behavior to their life is the fact that they're in the process of doing Teshuva for the terrible Averos that they had done. So you'll say, Maybe that's how it works, because what caused the individual to do such immense teshuva that calls on them to add so many mitzvahs to their lives was the Avera that they did. So the Zodoin, the intentional Avera, becomes the motivator for the teshuva, and therefore Nasdaq is And an example of that would be Al Bishtar. You find a very interesting halachic principle about a document if you want to verify the authenticity of a document. Under normal circumstances, you see a document, you have to assume that it's genuine, you have no reason to suspect otherwise. But let's say that there was a, an objection against a particular document, and then it went through the process of the based in verifying its authenticity. Then Such a document has far greater authenticity and far greater reliability than any other document which had never been contested. So the logic is, because there was an objection, that is actually what augmented and fortified this particular document. And maybe it would be the same thing. Because there was an Avera that challenged the individual's spirituality, and therefore they came back with all this additional evidence of the additional mitzvahs that they had done, so it could be that the Avera is what brought out that extra commitment to Judaism, much like the objection against the document brought out the great authenticity of the document. Maybe that's the explanation. But that's also not a sufficient explanation. Because in the scenario where there's an objection against a document, it's just that the objection led us to a process that verified the authenticity of the document. 
it should probably be the same thing with tshuva. Then what happens? There was an Avera. The Avera was bad. But the Avera caused the person to work harder and therefore to add more mitzvahs. So at best, the Avera is the cause of a shift in the person. But the Avera is not the merit. Whereas when you look at the language the Gemara uses, the actual intention of the Avera is become the merits and credits, that implies that it's not just an impact that the Averas had on the person to drive the person to a deeper commitment to Hashem. It sounds like the actual Averas themselves became positive credits, and that doesn't seem to make sense. We need to understand how that could be. So in order to understand that, we're going to have a look at the very last Mishnah that is shared in, in Masech Yuma. It will give us a very interesting perspective on how the concept of Kapara works. What does the Mishnah say? Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva says, You, the Jewish people, are praiseworthy and happy. And in front of whom are you purified? And who purifies you? Your Father in Heaven. And he quotes two Pesukim. One passage says, That Hashem says, I will spray purifying waters on you and you will become pure. And the other passage says, That Hashem is like a mikveh for the Jewish people. Just as a mikveh will purify somebody who was impure. Likewise, Hashem purifies the Jewish people. Now, if you analyze it, you'll discover that there are two statements that Rabbi Kiva makes, which implies the two steps to his, to his insight. Aleph, the first is in front of or before who are you purified? One point. And who purifies you? And because he makes two points, that's why he brings two psukim. That Hashem sprays the purifying water on us. And that Hashem is like this mikvah. Why are there two phases to the concept of Hashem purifying us? There are two concepts over here because there are two different types of purification. One is Hazar, spraying the purifying waters, and the other is Mikveh, immersion in a pool, a body of holy water. Halachically, if a person sprays water on somebody else in order to purify them, the person doing that action has to have the intention to purify the other person. Whereas when a person immerses in a mikvah, they don't have to have intention in order to be purified. And that's why it could even be accidental or incidental that they were in the mikvah. Because a mikvah has the power to purify somebody even when they did not have the appropriate intentions. So once we know those two factors, that helps us to understand two modes of how Hashem purifies us. So now we can understand the two different expressions Rabbi Kiva used. is the one, the other. Even though both of these psukim both illustrate how Hashem purifies us. The first talks about a process of zirka, of Sprinkling or spraying blood. The first describes what Abisha does something proactive, so to speak, sprinkling this purifying water on us, and that action makes a difference to us. Whereas in the second Pasuk, there's no action on Hashem's part, which would imply Kavona Satara, there's no focus 
two purifiers, because the second type of purification doesn't require intention. Now we have to understand the difference between these two and what they imply to us. Just as we've now illustrated that there are two possible modes of how it works from the perspective of the, of the one purifying, whether they have to or don't have to have intention. In our context, we're talking about Hashem Himself. Likewise, there are two modes of how the person purifies themselves, which spiritually, of course, means how the person goes through the process of doing Teshuvah. And they are the two generalized approaches of Teshuvah. One is Teshuvah Miyira, where a person does Teshuvah out of a sense of fear of Hashem, which includes the possibility that the person has suffered, and that brings them to Teshuvah. And the second is Teshuvah Miyahava, where a person does Teshuvah out of love of Hashem. Now, Hashav Miyahava, a person who does Teshuvah out of a sense of love of Hashem, that is somebody who has a clear intention. They want to reconcile, they want to reconnect, they want to reestablish a relationship with Hashem. Whereas if a person does Teshuvah out of a sense of fear, and much more so if a person does Teshuvah out of a sense of suffering, there the person's overarching wish is not to be punished. <laughs> and that's why the person has regrets, because they don't want to have difficulties in their lives. So, because those are two very different intentions, one is to protect self and the other is to connect to Hashem. So based on that, the Gemara defines the difference between their impact. When it talks about Teshuvah that is achieved through a sense of fear, about that the Pasuk says, that Hashem heals the person who did Teshuvah. Rashi, Rashi explains what does that mean. Like a person who um, had a particular blemish on their body, and now it's been healed, but there's there's a scar, there's some indication that it was once there. Whereas, when a person does teshuva out of love of Hashem, that avera is completely uprooted as if it had never been there. Okay, so Tshuva Mi'ira leaves a stain. Tshuva Mi'ava reverses the effects of the Avera as if it never happened. By the way, this has a practical application in Halacha when it comes to marriage. So let's say a person marries a woman, I'm an ass with a condition. I'm marrying you as long as you don't have any Averas on hand. So if such a woman did have certain Averas and she did Tshuva, but which Tshuva? Through Yira, whatever Averis she had in her past, they're not married. Because as we've just learned, when a person does Teshuvah motivated by fear, the Averis are not completely removed. There's still some kind of a stigma or stain. Whereas if she does Teshuvah out of love of Hashem, then they would be married. Because in that scenario, her Averis are completely ripped away from her record as if they had never existed. Which means that even at the time he proposed to her, retroactively, her Averis were non-existent. Because that's how powerful Teshuvah Mi'ava is. 
We find a similar distinction that the Gemara makes if a person marries a woman uh, on the condition that she has no vows that are outstanding or that she has no f- physical blemishes. So if this woman who had vows would go to a Torah scholar and he would absolve her of the vows, they'd be married. But if she goes to a doctor to cure the blemishes that she has, they're not married. Why? Because the power of a Torah scholar to be able to absolve a, um, a vow is such that it's as if it was never there. Whereas a doctor can only heal things going forward. He can't change the history that there was once an issue. So those are the two kinds of teshuvah. It's like the Chacham that completely removes any vestige as if there was no Avera there ever historically. It's like a doctor where you're healed going forward, but up until this point in time, there definitely was an issue. And that issue has left its mark. Let's dig deeper into this distinction between Tshuva Mi'ahava, out of love, and Tshuva Mi'ira, out of fear. Chilek Zeshav in Tshuva Mi'ahava and Tshuva Mi'ira Bichlam. The difference between the two, we've already identified that the motivator of Teshuvah Mi'ava is, I want to reconnect to Hashem. Whereas when a person is doing Teshuvah out of fear, it's not to connect to Hashem, it's to protect itself. So, we could actually be a little bit more specific and say in Teshuvah out of love of Hashem, there are similar distinctions. When we say that a person who does Teshuvah out of love of Hashem, it uproots the Avera as if it was never there, even that is in a Tachlis Hashlemus B'Tshuvah Mi'ava. That's not the ultimate state of Teshuvah out of love of Hashem. What is the ultimate state of real Teshuvah driven by love of Hashem? That would be not only when we completely expunge the Averos, but when they become credits on the person's record. Now, the reality is that when it comes to love of Hashem, there are so many different potential levels. Let's put them into three general categories. With all your heart, with all your soul, pushing yourself beyond yourself. So naturally, of course, there are many, many different kinds of Teshuvah, depending on what kind of Ahava motivated the Teshuvah. Now, as we've already said, the overarching driver of Teshuvah Mi'ava is to reconnect and reconcile with Hashem. Then, obviously, the best kind of Teshuvah Mi'ava is when you have the highest kind of love driving it. And in fact, you could say, compared to the ultimate state of Teshuvah and the ultimate state of Lava Vashem, anything less than that is not really considered true Teshuvah, and it's not considered true exp- uh, re- removal of that virus, and it's not considered true love. Like the Gemara says, if a person loves Hashem, but you don't reach the point of such a person can actually be classed as an individual who is not yet doing what Hashem wants. As mind blowing as that sounds. This concept is reflected in what the Ragachava said that. To get rid of an Avera does not require a specific intention. But to repair or to, to create restitution where there was an Avera, 
that does require kavana. In other words, that requires this absolute love of Hashem with complete focus on I want to reconcile in the best possible way. You'll actually see this alluded to in a very well-known halacha once again in the laws of marriage. What does it say? If a man proposes to a woman, and he says it's on condition that he is a tzaddik, the halacha is a filerosha even if we know him to be a, an absolute Russia, they are betrothed. They are married. Why? Because for all we know, he may have had an incredible clarity and a thought of Teshuva that cleared the slate. So now there's a fascinating question in this well-known Gemara. This does not seem to make sense. Whichever way you look at it, it doesn't seem to make sense. Let's look. What happens if the teshuva that this individual had very briefly but very powerfully was teshuva motivated by Yira? As we've already discussed, the, 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 the condition hasn't been fulfilled because the condition is that he would be a tzaddik and somebody does teshuva meyira, there's still blemishes of their averis. You can't be a tzaddik if you still have the residue of averis. On the other hand, if it was absolute shuva with complete love of Hashem, again, it shouldn't be a, a legitimate marriage. Because then he's not a tzaddik, he's a bal shuva, and bal shuva is actually a higher level. As we very well know, what Chazal tell us, that the level that at which a bal shuva stands, a perfect tzaddik is incapable of standing. So how could they possibly be married? The condition was that he's a tzaddik. Either he's not a complete tzaddik, or he's a bal shuva, which is not a tzaddik, although beyond a tzaddik. You'll say, but okay, so he misled her, and he gave her a better product than what he proposed. Maybe that should work. Mm-mm. So the Gemara already discusses this. If a person makes a proposal to a woman, then it turns out that it's not true what he's saying, and in fact what he's offering her is better, it disqualifies the marriage. Like, for example, with Yichus. Let's say that he says he's a Yisrael, and it turns out he's a Koyen. That's invalid. Or let's say that he was trying to impress her with money, and he said, I'm Rashani, and even him Sashir. says, I'm poor, it turns out he's rich. In the it would disqualify the marriage. So you can't say, well, he proposed to her that he's going to be a tzaddik, and the truth is, is a balchivah, which is far greater, doesn't matter. The condition was unfulfilled. It invalidates the marriage. So how does that work? The explanation is, as we said, there are different levels of love of Hashem, and therefore there are different levels of Teshuvah, and it's quite possible that this individual had Teshuvah Mi'ahava, but only that degree of Teshuvah that completely removes the Averas, and not yet the absolute level of Teshuvah, where the Averas themselves become merits. That's about whom we say that that person is such a great Baal Tshuva that even a Tzadik cannot reach there. So the point is that we now see Teshuva Me'ava has many, many levels and not every level takes you to the point of Zedonis Nasal Kizochius which is the one element that we're trying to understand. So if you say so you can take it beyond that. Seeing as we're considering the possibility here that a person had a meaningful shift, paradigm shift in their mind of Teshuva, but it was Literally instantaneous. 
It's quite unlikely that in that short amount of time, the person could have achieved the ultimate state of tshuva. So therefore, it's not very likely, it's probably impossible that he would have reached such a tremendous point of commitment to Hashem where his averus would be transformed into credits and therefore he'd be considered a Baal completely beyond the tzaddik. Just to explain this a little bit better, what is the distinction between a Baal and a tzaddik? The fact that a Baal has an advantage over a tzaddik who's never tasted an Avera in his life, it's not a, this is not a measure of how much the Baal does. We don't just say, this Baal has so many mitzvahs, and in addition to that, a whole lot of extra credits for Avera that were turned into something positive. What distinguishes a Baal and gives them the edge over a Tzadik is a qualitative advantage. The fact that the type of credits that the, the Baal has were made out of Averus, that's That is the kind of merit which is a completely different level and experience and nature of merit. And therefore, because the Baal has this as part of their experience, therefore, where the Baal Teshuvah stands, the most perfect Tzadik can never stand. It doesn't matter how many credits the Tzadik will amass through all of his efforts, it will all be in the world of neutral or healthy merit. He will never enter the world of negative things that have been transformed into merit. So the Baal Teshuvah is in another league, in another world from the Tzaddik. But when would a person be such a Baal Teshuvah who's in this completely different league of spirituality? Only when what they have done as tshuva is motivated by the ultimate state of love of Hashem. Which would mean that they have the best intention of connection to Hashem. The intention of all I want is to connect. That's what will make the difference. So that the things that this individual does, the, the Averis that they did, will now be considered like Zochios. So bearing in there, let's understand this concept that Shlemus Kavona, let's understand firstly what is the ultimate Kavona and the ultimate state of Teshuvah, and then and the concept of how you transform Zdonis into Zochios is something the Alter Rebbe explains clearly in Perek Zayn of Tanya. What does he say? It gives examples of various things that are forbidden, like forbidden food. And he says, Those are things that are completely uh, shackled in the world of impurity forever. And they have no way out. Unless a person does such an extreme kind of tshuva. The kind of tshuva where the person's averus literally become their merits. Which is not just generically tshuva out of love, but from the depths of the heart. With a tremendous love of Hashem. And a yearning. And a soul that pines to connect to Hashem. And the person's neshama feels thirsty, like as if you were in a desert. 
And the reason for it is because up until this point in time, this person's soul was in a desolate environment. He has sitter achro, which is the, that which is opposite to godliness. And the person was as far from Hashem's light as you could possibly get. It's for that reason. That's why this person has a thirst and yearning for Hashem, which is far greater than any tzaddik. As the Maimir Chazal says, that where the Baal Tshuva stands, even the greatest tzaddik cannot stand. It's that kind of Tshuva motivated by this incredible love of Hashem that us Say just say she's done as nice like his that the demerits become merits. It's because through the averus that's what brought about this tremendous truth. So shnei nyanim nizborukan. Daltrevis explained here two things, critical things for us. Number one, or ilo yanasa begavro. The incredible shift that happens to the person doing the tshuva. That the various that the person did caused this person to feel a spiritual thirst for godliness that even the greatest tzaddik doesn't have. That's the first shift. Them. The second thing is the difference that occurs to those behaviors which previously were Averos and now are considered Zachios, are considered merits because they were driven by this incredible love for Hashem. You can actually see this in Halachic terms. We're going to explain a very important area of halacha, which is when you do one action or activity in order to prepare for a mitzvah, how much is that considered part of the mitzvah? And they'll be relevant over here because we're looking at our various as being the catalysts for this incredible tshuva that a person has done. So let's talk about this concept generally. How is something which leads to a mitzvah, how much is a part of the mitzvah? There are many different scenarios with many different levels of how significant the prep work is to a particular mitzvah. For example, let's say that there's something that you need as a tool in order to do a mitzvah. Without those tools, you can never do the mitzvah. They obviously have real importance. A great example is the famous Rabbi Eliezer de Mila. According to Rabbi Eliezer, on Shabbos, you're allowed to chop wood in order to turn the wood, to burn the wood, to make it into coal, in order to burn and, and, and produce um, iron or metal, that you can have a blade to be able to do a bris on Shabbos. Now, we all know that you're allowed to do a bris on Shabbos for a natural birth, but he's saying more than that, he's saying that pretty much all the tools that are required in order to do a bris override Shabbos because the tools are already considered part of the mitzvah. So that's one level. Then there's a level beyond that. We find the Gemara Yerushalmi tells us, that when it comes to preparing your lulav or preparing building your sukkah before sukkah, so other similar examples, so the Yerushalmi says something fascinating. When you build your sukkah, there's a bracha to say over it. When you bind your lulav, you say a bracha over the lulav. The same would be when you write a mezuzah, when you make tefillin, etc. In other words, the Yerushalmi is saying that the preparation work for a mitzvah is already enough of a reason to say a bracha. There's a simple explanation for this. 
When you consider that the Torah told us we have to fulfill a certain mitzvah. You have to sit in a sukkah. And the only way you could ever sit in a sukkah on sukkahs is only to build your sukkah beforehand. The only way you could ever put on tefillin is to make a pair of tefillin. So logically, preparing the tefillin, building the sukkah, must be part of the mitzvah. Or at the very least, the preparation work, because it's so integral to the mitzvah itself, must have some very significant importance to be part of the mitzvah. And the Yerushalmi says that it's actually part of the mitzvah. You can say a bracha over it. So, level one was the possibility of something that is a tool to fulfill a mitzvah and is already considered part of the mitzvah. Level two is the preparation deserves a bracha. One level beyond that, in the preparation for mitzvah, you find in the service of the base Amikdash. A great example would be taking the blood from the animal that was slaughtered to the Mizbech, where the mitzvah is to sprinkle the blood on the Mizbech. Now, obviously, physically walking the blood from location A to location B is not a mitzvah. It's only to facilitate the mitzvah of pouring the blood onto the Mizbech. Still, Halachically, that walk, those few steps, are considered part of how you serve in the Beis HaMikdash. To the extent that if the Kohen has an inappropriate thought at that particular point in time, it could invalidate the mitzvah of sprinkling the blood. Another example, more generally, in various places you find that in the service in the base Amikdash, if a particular service was not completed, it still has certain halachic status as if it were part of the service in the base Amikdash. But it wouldn't be considered a full avoider because there's still another step that follows it. Which is why if a non-Koyan would perform this particular avoider, it would not be a problem, even though a non-Koyan is not supposed to serve in the base Amikdash. But because these are considered incomplete avoiders, they are not yet considered an issue for a non-Koyan. So why is this relevant to us? Because we try to understand in our scenario where we're talking about effectively something that causes something else. There is no way for a person to achieve this highest level of other than, as Tanya describes, through having done Averis, because they will be the precipitating factors that will drive a person to do this kind of Tshuva. And then, and then having done Teshuvah because of the Averis that occurred, going forward, the person's mitzvahs will be in a whole different league. So therefore, fitting into what we're saying, if a tool for a bris could already be considered a mitzvah, according to Rabbi Eliezer, to override Shabbos, and the preparing of a sukkah could already be considered a reason to say a bracha, according to the Yerushalmi, and walking the blood to the Mizbech is already considered something that is so much so integral to the, to the Avoidah, that an inappropriate thought would invalidate the whole Avoidah. So in the same vein, the Averas that caused a person to have that level of dedication to Hashem that draws out of themselves that tremendous love, which is is completely beyond the avoid of an ordinary person, even a tzaddik. So therefore, the zdonias nasik is they're part of the they're part of the mitzvah. They're part of the zuchus. But is mitzvah, as we've already explained with the different preparations or tools for mitzvahs. Now, 
there, there might still be some questions for us. Maybe it's not yet clear. Number one, Aleph. When we talk about the tools or the preparations for a mitzvah, nobody's suggesting that they actually become the mitzvah. According to Rabbi Eliezer, who says that you can go burn a fire in order to produce coals, in order to do the blacksmithy work that you have to do to produce the blade for the, for the bris, he never suggests that burning the, 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 the wood is a mitzvah. He says it's a preparation for a mitzvah. And even according to the Yushalmi, let's say that you make a bracha over building your sukkah or binding your lulav. The Yushalmi would never suggest that now you fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah and you don't have to sit in a sukkah for the whole week. This is the mitzvah of building the sukkah, but you still have to do the mitzvah of sitting in the sukkah. And as we've already said, if you have an avoider that is not absolutely complete, it's really not really an avoider. So taking the blood to the Mizbech without actually sprinkling onto the Mizbech would not be considered an avoider yet. So how can we say that Zdoinus becomes Zochius? Maybe you could say they lead to Zochius. Based in addition to that, Vika, a more important thing. All of the examples that we have used, the preparation is along the lines of the mitzvah that you're going to do. You're preparing the blade for a bris. You're preparing a sukkah to sit in the sukkah. They're directly related to the mitzvah. You're talking about making a sukkah. You're talking about making a lulav. You're talking about taking the blood to the mitzvah. How can you possibly compare that to what we're discussing? You're talking about an avera, You're talking about intentional averas, the exact opposite of zochios. And yet you're telling me that these actions are now later going to be transformed and become Zochius. How does that work? And we can strengthen this question by asking, Let's say that you were doing something that was the preparation for a mitzvah. It's not actually part of building the sukkah, for example, but you need it in order to have a mitzvah. Keep going. You have to plow, you have to plant. And then based on that, and then after that, you'll be able to harvest and be able to have all the things that you want. And with those, you can do mitzvahs, pay a leka, chicha, maisa, truma, whatever it is. Obviously, without plowing and planting, you'll never be able to do the mitzvahs of agriculture, like trumas, maisa, svechula, etc. Nobody would ever suggest that plowing your field is considered a mitzvah. It facilitates a mitzvah, certainly not a mitzvah. Going to the office, yes, it will facilitate giving tzedakah, but it's not a mitzvah. It's not even considered a prep or a tool for a mitzvah. So now you're going to say that zedonus are? How does that work? Let's explain firstly why we don't consider normal work already part of a mitzvah because it might produce the possibility for mitzvahs. Because we know that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was of the view that going to work to earn a living is actually not the ideal. As he famously asks, if a person is going to spend all their time in the fields, what's going to happen to Torah learning? And even though the, 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 the rest of the Chachamim disagreed and said, uh, you know, you have to do what you have to do, but nobody's going to say that it's ideal. We're definitely not going to suggest that these are the intro or the tools or the, or the causes of a mitzvah. So how could you possibly say that Zdoinus, intentional laveros, are going to become Zochios? It doesn't seem to make any sense. 
here's a brief explanation. Although all mitzvahs are unique, they all carry one universal theme, which is to do what the Ebishta wants. As the expression goes, I said and people did what I asked. Likewise, the universal theme of every Avera is to transgress Hashem's will. And then, then there are all the details. Removing the foreskin. So we could choose to look at mitzvahs in the unique specifics or the universal theme. When we look at the unique specifics, so even if I'm preparing by building the sukkah or preparing the knife for the mila, and it's very linked to the actual mitzvah itself, and you can see the correlation, once I'm looking at the specifics of the mitzvah, this is not one of the specifics. Building a sukkah is not one of the specifics of sitting in a sukkah. It's a necessary precursor, but it's not one of the specifics. Preparing the blade does not equate with cutting off the skin. Building a sukkah does not equate with sitting in a sukkah. Carrying the blood to the Mizbech does not equate with sprinkling it on the Mizbech. But tshuva is not like any other mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah about specifics. It's a mitzvah about the entire theme of connection to Hashem. What defines tshuva? Is that the person abandons their sin? Completely erases it from their memory banks. And takes an absolute decision never to repeat this behavior. As the Pasuk says, that the, the Russia abandons his path. Tshuva is not details. It's a fundamental choice and shift that a person takes in their heart. So where does Tshuva live? Tshuva lives in that attitude, in that heartfelt decision. Seeing as Teshuvah is all about attitude and all about the feeling you have in your heart, when that Teshuvah is with this immense thirst to connect to Hashem, that was caused by the Averis that the person did. In other words, what motivated the Teshuvah? That's why the donors become like the merits. Because without those donors, this feeling would never have existed. And seeing as Teshuvah is all about feelings, and all about this very firm resolve to connect and to abandon what was in the past. All of that was only facilitated by the fact that there was this in the past. So therefore, that becomes part of, those are various, become part of this, of this journey. But when does it work? Only when a person really has that immense kind of teshuva. Because as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that is the scenario where the various become the cause and therefore part of the journey of the tshuva. Therefore they become merits. But when a person does not reach that level of absolute commitment to tshuva, even if the tshuva is motivated by love, then the person cannot transform their various into mitzvahs, into merits. All they can do is completely remove them from the system. And then the Rebbe is going to give us some very, very brief uh, examples of this. Okay, very briefly, a few examples where you see a similar kind of thing. 
Examples of where you have the precursor or the, the prep for a mitzvah, where it is similar and along the lines of the mitzvah, and it actually becomes part of the mitzvah. Number one, sugda chinuch, a great example is education. So you get two kinds of chinuch, preparation and education. There were the karbonas that were brought in the Mishkan in order to facilitate the inauguration of the Mishkan. So that's only, so to speak, prep, but it actually becomes mitzvah. Likewise, similar thing with the koyhanim. They had to kind of train, and then that becomes the mitzvah actual service. And likewise, the idea that you have to educate your children to learn Torah, which obviously is only to prepare them for when they are adults, and yet it is a mitzvah as well. Void, various other examples like that. Another set of examples. Certain mitzvahs that we do today in Golos. So the Sifri comes and the Pasuk says, you will get lost and you will place my words on your mouth, etc. What does he say? What does the Sifri say? Hashem says, even though I put you into Golos, you should be outstanding in your fulfillment of mitzvahs. So when you come back to Eretz Yisrael and to the time of Mashiach, it won't be surprising, it won't be new, you won't have to learn how to do mitzvahs, you'll be used to doing them. Void, again, other examples of where you see the mitzvah now, is not exactly as the mitzvah will be in the future, and yet it already has value as it is now, and that value will be, so to speak, fully revealed in the future. What we're illustrating of here is examples of things where the mitzvah in its original form is not a full mitzvah. And then at a later form, it becomes that full mitzvah. So in a similar way, this donos become part of what will eventually be the mitzvah. Another example. Now let's look at examples of mitzvahs where something appears to be very negative and actually turns out to be a mitzvah. The that we send away in Yom Kippur. Or the paradum of Egla Rufa. Three examples of animals that go outside of the precinct of the Beis Hamikdash in order to be considered part of the service of the Beis Hamikdash. What happens? You dafka send them away from the Beis Hamikdash and then they atone. Atone. The Torah calls them all chatos atonement. They're like any other korban which is normally done inside the Beis Hamikdash, and yet even though they're outside of the precinct of holiness, they're considered mitzvahs, korbanos, and they're even more effective in a certain respect than some of the other korbanos. So in a similar vein, you have the, the zdonis, which are outside of the realm of, of purity, and they become zochias. They become part of the service and part of connecting to Hashem. And historically, we have a similar example. The fact that Eliyahu was able to bring a korban outside of the Beis Hamikdash, even though it was, of course, Hirosh was only temporary, but still the same principle that you could go into a place of impurity and have a tremendous impact of holiness. Void and other examples. And Yaserim is there, probably to sum it all up. The principle that you take wood in order to produce a, the handle of an axe in order to, to be able to chop wood. In other words, you could take something completely negative and convert it into something completely positive. And a Klal Godel Batera final example is the great overarching principle of Torah, which is Bikuach Nefesh. That when a person's life is in danger, you break every single Avera, except for those that completely go against the Torah, the three examples where a person has to rather die and then transgress. Even though a person who commits suicide loses their portion in the world to come, and yet here are a whole lot of scenarios of where you do something which is wrong, suicide, except it's completely right because Yehorek Val Yavar. 
many, many more details and examples that we could use. The principle is that we have precedent to say that within Judaism there are things that are not necessarily a mitzvah but become a mitzvah. And in fact, there are even things that seem to be completely antithetical to Judaism and they become a mitzvah. And that's what's happening over here. With all of that information, now that we understand the technology of how Zdonis Nasalikizochius works, that there's this intense love of Hashem, which is motivated by the Averis, and therefore the Averis are part of the process, and therefore they become this incredible switch around from being negative to becoming positive. With that information, we can go back to the Gemara at the end of, of Yuma, which raised questions for us. What did we say? person who has an eternal emission on Yom Kippur, should be anxious all year round. But if they survive, then the person is guaranteed a portion of the world to come. So the first thing that should strike you about the language of this Gemara is, that it says you should be anxious all year round. And it doesn't use what the Gemara usually uses, where it says if something occurs, then it's a bad sign for the person. Here it says specifically that the person should be anxious. Why is that relevant to know that the person is anxious? So I believe the explanation is, Judaism does not support anxiety. Yid'ag, to be concerned, means that the person should be concerned all year round to do Teshuvah. Uh, uh, so that the person should not be afraid of what if I don't survive the year. El al The person should be afraid. What kind of a person am I who the Abish to allow to have this experience on Yom Kippur? Like Rashi says, Maybe they they uh, didn't accept the person's fasting. And so they don't accept this person's fasting, where you're not supposed to do all these different things on Yom Kippur, and they satisfied the person in a way that, you know, even a person who's fasting cannot necessarily help themselves. And the Rashi says, It's like the, the servant that comes to pour water for his master, and the master, uh, master overturns the entire jug of water over the servant's face. Or as the Altarebbe adds to this, It's like the master saying, I don't want you to serve me. That's what's bothering the person. They just slap me in the face on Yom Kippur. And because the person is so concerned about what occurred to them on Yom Kippur and what it says about their spirituality, that has forced this individual to be more focused and to work harder and to do tshuva during the course of the year. Exactly like tshuva miyava. Just to say it in slightly different uh, words. As we well know, a person who has an omission in the middle of their sleep, it's not intentional. Especially when you consider what day this is, it's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day where we remove ourselves from materialism. And you certainly don't find that people on Yom Kippur have inappropriate thoughts, certainly not intentionally. If this occurred to the person, then the person has to recognize that the fact that they had such an omission on Yom Kippur was not because of the Yetzirah, it was because the Ebishter decided that's what should happen to them. Because as the Pasuk tells us, no bad things come from on high. So the person should be cognizant of the fact that if the Ebishter threw this scare at them on Yom Kippur, it must be because the Ebishter wants them to work harder, to wake them up. 
שלא יהוי אוכל להגיע לה מצד סיידו אבוידה רגל של צדק, על דרך הנאה בטניה. Because they just wanted to force this individual to the kind of service and the kind of tshuva that even a normal person, even a tzaddik, wouldn't necessarily have. So that's how the person has to look at it. Yidag kol ha'shona, am I doing the tshuva that Eibesh expected of me? Because he created this environment, he created this opportunity. When a person does proper tshuva, which is represented in the Gemara as Yidag kol ha'shona, that he'll be nervous all year long, the impact and value that he gets from it is not only an increase in his spiritual service of Hashem, it has a positive impact on his physical life. He'll live long. He'll live even longer than his neshama was originally allocated and more than he deserved through ordinary service of Hashem. Now we can understand why it is that Masechus Yuma, which is all about Shuvah, and specifically Perik Yom HaKippurim, which is very much about Shuvah, should end on this note. And why it links back to what Rabbi Akiva said in the final Mishnah, which the Gemara quoted just before us. As we mentioned earlier, Rabbi Akiva addresses the two ways that Hashem purifies us. The two ways that Hashem purifies us. Hazor, by spraying us with the purifying waters. And allowing us to immerse in a mikveh. As we said, in order to spray a person and purify them, you have to have intention. Whereas the mikveh does not require intention. Coming off that Mishnah is where our Gemara steps in. Now the Gemara says, let's talk about the two different kinds of tshuva that a person could do. Tshuva megira or tshuva mi'ava, whether it's tshuva motivated by fear or by love. As we already mentioned, tshuva that is motivated, motivated by fear does not have the real intention of tshuva, it's actually self-protection. Whereas tshuva out of love has the right intention, which is to connect to Hashem. And then we said it with Fratius Yosef Shnei Hoi Fani B'Tshuva Mi'ava Gufa, that you can actually break down Tshuva Mi'ava into two similar categories. The one kind of Tshuva is where the person completely removes any history of, uh, of various in their life and they become like a Tzadik. To achieve that, even an instantaneous thought of Tshuva can do that. Without full intention, like going into the Mikveh. Then there's a higher experience of Tshuva, which is so powerful that it actually transforms their various intermerits. And that you can only achieve with absolute focus. Similar to the spraying of the water, which is Tshuva Mi'ava, as we've now explained. And in fact, guess what? Even this section also describes these two concepts. Aleph, the first thing we told is that the person who does this kind of tshuva and therefore lives out the year, guaranteed a portion in the next world. So one explanation, one, one concept is, the person has, what's going to happen? Now you have many mitzvahs, so you get into the next world. Which is similar to removing all that various, no obstacle, no obstruction to getting into Elam Haba. As Rashi says, now you know the person is a tzadik gomer. They made it to this point, the level of a tzadik. Even though the person fulfilled the requirement to do tshuva all year long, 
And it's just a chuba bechavana. And the chuba was the right intentions. Adain loyhoi says a kavana bechlei musa. It still wasn't the ultimate state of chuba mi'ava, which we have described. Then there's the next level. Beis, mafesh chayov saga maske. Then you have a person who lives long and he sees next generations. Now you see that the fact that this person experienced this carry on Yom Kippur is not something which is completely negative. Not only is it not negative, but actually it brings tremendous benefit to the person. He lives long. Which is exactly like the concept of the Averis becoming merits. Which is the impact of doing proper tshuva in the proper way with the proper intentions. And then the end of the Gemara adds even more to this. With regards to the two ways that you could do Teshuva Me'ava, which we've now described. The one way of Teshuva Me'ava, enough to remove the Averis completely. And the other way of Teshuva Me'ava, which is to turn the negative into positive. The two key things that the Gemara adds to that. Aleph, number one. Firstly, the Gemara is very clear. How do you get there? How do you reach the point where you've completely removed our various come altogether? And how do you reach the point that our various become mitzvahs? How does the Gemara explain this? Because as we said, the person has this nocturnal emission which was unintentional on Yom Kippur. As we said, that is clearly a sign that Sashkocha practice. Base, therefore, now the person will take it to heart and he'll do tshuva throughout the year. So, what do you see? That they wish to create an opportunity for a person. On the face of it, it looked like a terrible event that happened in the person's life. It turns out, in fact, that it was able to offering the person an opportunity. They use this opportunity, they go through this tshuva, and therefore, they reach the point that they're able to transform all the negative into positive. Then we learn beyond that base. Not only mikveh Yisrael Hashem, not only does Hashem completely give us the opportunity for immersion, and not only that that Debesha allows us to get to the point that we have this kavana of tshuva mi'ava and it affects us spiritually. But beyond that, the Gemara adds more than what the Mishnah told us, that it is possible for a person through doing tshuva mi'ava to have physical benefits, that the person lives long, until he gets the ultimate reward, which is children and grandchildren who are all completely occupied in Tera Mitzvahs. And Mitzvah we should all be zeichet to have tshuva mi'ava, Yarech Yomim, Chaim Nitzchim, with the coming of Moshiach, Bonim, Bnei Bonim, Oisim, Vateri, Mitzvahs.